Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Paper straws, part of the Democratic Party platform. We'll dive into CNN's latest town hall regarding climate change. All of the latest with regards to where things stand now. Just one week until the third Democratic presidential debate. The stakes getting higher. Plus, shakeup. For President Trump's foreign policy team, Jason Greenblatt departs. What does it mean for Jared Kushner's Middle East peace plan? We'll have the latest on that. Plus, on former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis criticizing the polarized politics in Washington and America's failure to stand by its allies an indictment on President Donald Trump's foreign policy. We've got an all-star panel. Roger Fisk is back. He's a Democratic strategist, longtime Obama aide, and the principal of New Day Strategy. And Holly Turner makes her Bloomberg Radio Sound On debut, a Republican strategist, a partner at Stampede Consulting. And all the way from the Acela, fresh from the Acela, John Gans, former chief speechwriter at the Pentagon and author of a great book, White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American way of war. Lots to talk about foreign policy, lots to talk about domestically. We're just one week away from the third Democratic presidential debate in Houston, Texas. And already the candidates trying to make their cases and their differentiations on, I don't even think that's a word, differentiations, on climate change uh, following a CNN-hosted town hall. To break down all of this, we have Roger Fisk, a Democratic strategist, a longtime Obama aide and principal of New Day Strategy, and Holly Turner. She is a Republican strategist and a partner at Stampede Consulting. Roger, I want to start with you, and I want to get your take as you respond to the frontrunner, former Vice President Joe Biden, who really has been, uh, he's appeared in New York at back-to-back town halls talking with the moderator and audience questions about climate change. Take a listen about what he said, how he would orchestrate climate change if he were the president of the United States. Here he is. There is no leadership. I know almost every one of these world leaders. If I were, if I'd been president today, I would have at the G7 made sure this became the topic. There would be no empty chair. I would be pulling the G7 together. So you, he says that he's going to, one, reorchestrate international coalitions to allow U.S. allies to attack the problem and address the issue of climate change. I want to play for you now Elizabeth Warren and as she made her pitch at the CNN climate change down hall about how she would do it. Here's Senator Warren. Till we attack that corruption head on, so long as those guys continue to call all the shots, 
then we're not going to be able to make the changes that we must make. These changes are no longer optional. They're no longer there as a maybe yes, maybe no. This is our future. So there's Elizabeth Warren, and the reason I like those two sound bites is because I really think it captures the pitch that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren right now are making to voters, right? Joe Biden saying he's going to restore America in the world in terms of uniting allies, in terms of creating coalitions, and Elizabeth Warren saying, hey, this is corruption. These are large corporations that have created this issue of climate change, and she's going to take them on. What's going to resonate with Democratic primary voters? First off, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I didn't see all of the presentations last night, so I need to throw that out at the beginning. The one thing that I saw is a difference, I saw three of them, was that Senator Warren was able to bring it back to jobs, economy, kind of kitchen table thing. So, and she did that, I think, very adroitly to just not leave it as like a conceptual hazy, this thing's looming on the horizon kind of thing, that there's a lot of opportunity there. And that our universities and the research and development have a lot of opportunities and, and major equities and roles to play in this. Senator Sanders' presentation on it was a little bit more kind of 20th century, was a little bit more kind of doomsday, like we just need to do this, without the finesse of like the economic impact and the economic opportunities that it would bring about. But I agree with your fundamental analysis that, that, that Biden was trying to push it in the direction that are his strengths, which is trying to restore some American leadership around this issue since there currently is none. And and Senator Warren was looking more domestically. So I think you and I are on, roughly on the same page on that one. You know, I, and and Holly Turner, Republican strategist, partner at Stampede Consulting, on the Bloomberg Terminal, there's this great story about the headline written by my colleague, Ari Natter. Trump rolls back energy requirements for billions of light bulbs. And the reason I like this is because I think it really captures the Republican argument, right? And we were joking about this a little bit before we came on air. But to Republicans who are looking at the issue of climate change, they think that the Democrats are proposing paper straws and, you know, regulations for cheeseburgers. And so here, according to the Bloomberg Terminal, the Energy Department made public a final rule Wednesday that withdrew a requirement that light bulbs commonly used in recessed lighting, track lighting, bathroom vanities, and decorative fixtures meet the same energy efficiency standards that effectively phased out the traditional, uh, the traditional bulb. In other words, they're going to make it easier for the light bulbs. Right. And, you know, it just it drives me crazy that Republicans get this rap for not caring about people in, in lower economic um, parts of our country. But, I mean, light bulbs are freaking expensive. If you've ever gone to Home Depot and tried to buy these new light bulbs, they're expensive. So this is something that the Trump administration is saying, look, it's not time yet. It's too early. Maybe the technology's there, but it's too expensive right now. And look, on, on climate change as a whole, it is, in my problem with what the Democratic candidates had to say, is that they, they're trying to push us to the forefront of this climate change agenda and make us make all the sacrifices when we've got places like China and India that are contributing the majority of the pollution, and they're, they're the ones that are causing all the problems. So even if we were to completely eliminate our carbon footprint for our whole entire country, it wouldn't make any difference in you know, the end. You know who I think was, was way out in front of this in the Republican messaging side was actually Carly Fiorina during the last the, the 2016 debate. She said, yes, she believes in climate change, but she noted, to, to what Holly's point, Roger, she noted, okay, you know, how, how is 
putting regulations on light bulbs and straws going to make China and India actually step up to the plate here and address climate change? This has to be a global solution and not just an American one. I completely agree. And there's a reason why people all over the world buy Marlboros and Levi's and Budweiser, right? Like it or not, how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives, how we choose to spend our money has ramifications and often serves as a North Star for how people behave around the world. And if we're, I mean, currently, obviously now it's not a national priority, but were this to be one, we would want to be able to say that we're being consistent. And it's important when you go to India, when you go to China, the other folks that are kind of essentially climbing the economic ladder that we are somewhat already having surmounted, that we are willing to look at everything from our emissions on through how our daily lives go to our transportation, to our infrastructure. So it needs to be a full spectrum thing. No one's saying that straws or anything else or light bulbs are going to fix it. But as soon as you start to create gaps in that full spectrum solution, be like, oh, well, it's too early to phase out coal power plants, even though right now in Kentucky, they're the biggest energy provider, Enerblue, is literally training their workers for the day when they will no longer and work in a great. coal power but plant. The, Make sure you're talking to the that's, mic. They're doing yeah. that. They're not being forced to do that, right? Like, let the free market. Private sector. Private sector needs to be making these decisions. And, and look, let's, I mean, we talk about India and places like that. You know, emissions, is it a big deal? Yeah. Or is it contributing to pollution? Yes. But look at what it's done for people that were living in squalor. I mean, now they have access to things that they never had access before. So I, I just I think I would really appreciate it if the other side of Democrats would just acknowledge that, look, we all see that something needs to be done about this, but it has to be done on a global scale. And we can let the free market, we can let capitalism step in and, and be a part of finding solutions to this without the government forcing it or paying for it. And it's going to benefit. It's going to lift everyone up and it's going to solve this problem eventually I, I, without putting us at an economic disadvantage. I would globally. be thrilled if what we were hearing from the administration was as principled as what Holly just shared with us now. But the fact <laughs> is, is that it, it's not. Uh, she's at least willing to embrace the fundamental science here, which puts her in the minority of no, her own party. No. There's not a single person in the White House that has come out and given credence to the science itself. My point with the with Enerblue in Kentucky is not about, and I agree that letting the market do its will. Although one can say the excesses of the market brought about, you know, the rivers that could catch fire and things like that. But my point in that was that the market itself is already seeing this as a problem, and the market itself is already seeing this as an opportunity. Yeah, that's, yeah. And, that's an opportunity. and that's where leadership comes in. Mm -hmm. That's where if you can take. If, if the private sector is already going in that direction, which they clearly are, and you can couple that with public leadership, then that's how you can really get ahead of this and make it an American win, not only domestically, but globally. But we don't have that leadership right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and I think it'll be interesting to see how the business community does that, because right now, I mean, again, as someone who interviews lawmakers daily, all I see is a Green New Deal, and I don't know what the specifics are of it and paper straws, and I gotta be candid, when I'm at a coffee shop and I just want my iced coffee and I see a paper straw, I, I'm like, ugh, another paper straw. Coming up, we're gonna pivot to foreign policy. Panel stays, Roger Fisk, Holly Turner. John Gons is here, former speechwriter at the Pentagon and author of White House Warriors, how the National Security Council transformed the American way of war. Read it, 
read it makes a great gift as well. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent with Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. President Trump's Middle East peace plan gets a shakeup. The team, the team that is putting that together. Trump's Mideast peace envoy to exit with plans still under wraps. Nick Wadhams and David Weiner writing on the Bloomberg Terminal. A chief architect of President Donald Trump's Middle East peace initiative announced he's stepping down, raising questions about a diplomatic effort that has been repeatedly delayed. Jason Greenblatt, who has worked closely with President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, on the long-promised plan, said in a White House statement Thursday he's decided to return to New Jersey to be closer with his wife and six children. Meanwhile, Avi Berkowitz, an advisor to Kushner and State Department official Brian Hook, he was on the program yesterday, he's going to take on an expanded role on the team. Here with me in studio, a gentleman who knows a thing or two about foreign policy, John Gans. He is former chief speechwriter at the Pentagon. He's also the author of the new book, White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. John, thanks for coming back. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, so we, we, I've interviewed Jason Greenblatt. I've interviewed Brian Hook yesterday. In terms of the administration's foreign policy in the Middle East, how does Jason Greenblatt, who is a longtime confidant to President Trump, having worked with him for decades at the Trump Organization, his longtime Israeli advisor, how does his departure impact the foreign policy of the administration? Well, I think first things first, any Middle East peace plan, whether it was you know, written by Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, anybody has struggled to sort of deliver on a Middle East peace plan. So it's, a, it's an impossible assignment to start off. Um, and to do it in a way uh, that the Trump administration has attempted to do it has been done before, right? Like to try and keep this under wraps, to keep it from leaking, to keep it from going public, and trying to develop a holistic solution to one of the stickiest problems in international relations is a tough thing to do. The hope was um, that having somebody close to the president and somebody with allies in the region would be helpful. Um, I don't think that it has particularly um, borne fruit. You 
know, Jason Greenblatt's appointment hasn't exactly borne fruit. The plan isn't exactly 100% public. Uh, there's been some leaks and some suggestions of what they're going to do, but it's still not public. So it hasn't really borne fruit, the plan of making it informal, keeping it under wraps, and giving it to a close presidential uh, friend. His replacement is pretty junior um, and probably doesn't have the relationship with the president or relationships with the region. So I don't think it's going to get more likely to happen. But this sort of shows you that the sort of ad hoc informal way that the Trump administration has tried to, uh, tried to make foreign policy um, is not um, bearing fruit on the foreign policy decisions, whether it's in China, in the Middle East, Afghanistan or anywhere but, else. But, but taking away the administration for a second and mm -hmm. looking at the domestic dialogue here in the United States, pertaining to Middle Eastern policy. There is now an open debate, an open debate within the Democratic Party about support for one, our most important ally in the region, Israel. Mm -hmm. And how has that impacted, the, how has the, the state of play in, Amer in domestic American politics, taking the debate of AOC and the like uh, in the Democratic Party uh, with regards to, to Democratic leadership and, and Speaker Pelosi and support for Israel, coupled with the administration strategy, how has that impacted the broader geopolitical landscape in the region? Well, I think it's a good question that the United States is going through a momentary moment where it's actually trying to sort of do a little soul searching on its relationship with Israel, um, especially in the Democratic Party. But uh, I think there's less of a debate within the Republican Party. But there's certainly this moment of soul searching. And that's actually could be a moment of opportunity. Is for it soul searching or is it a temper tantrum? Well, <laughs> one person soul searching. Uh, you know, yeah. I would never call my son's uh, temper tantrum uh, soul searching, but I can certainly <laughs> appreciate the difference. I do think um, that the issue of Israel and the way that, to a degree, uh, Israel has conducted its affairs, the Middle East is geopolitical landscape has changed, and the Trump administration has approached Israel, has created uh, a, a, a sort of probably um exacerbated the division in the democratic party over america's relationship with israel um and i think aoc and and some of the other younger democrats are more willing to question america's sort of binding relationship with israel in theory that could have pre presented an opportunity for president trump at home to be able to sort of peel off enough democrats to support a, an ambitious peace plan um but it's one complicating factor among many in trying to get a peace plan done behind closed doors, right? Um, and so I think it's one of those ones that is probably why this has probably been doomed from the start um, in the sense that... But we shouldn't be hoping that it's doomed from the start, right? We should be, we should, no matter who the president is, be rooting for there to be a peace, a successful peace plan that has eclipsed everyone. You can't blame them for trying. For sure. I, I don't blame them for trying. I think the the this, the one thing I'd say is, is that um, the problem with bringing sort of people in who aren't used to foreign policy is that they don't always know the history of it, which is Ronald Reagan tried a similar deal in the 1980s called the Reagan Initiative. There was basically an attempt... Uh, to try and create a peace plan uh, behind closed doors mm -hmm. that was basically going to be presented as a fait accompli to all the people in the United States Congress as well as the people in the region, the leaders in the region. And it eventually got to the point where everybody came to the conclusion that they couldn't trust the deal that was getting made. And the minute it got oxygen, it was killed. Right. Interesting. So the history of this shows how hard it is. Um, and to a degree, I think Trump, by trying to do this the way he's done it, has actually probably missed an opportunity to sort of divide the Democrats and score Democratic support for his police. I, I was meeting with a, a Democratic consultant the other week, and they were talking to me just about even in the Clinton administration, that meeting with Yasser Arafat at the White House, how that really at the time for Democrats, especially Democrats uh, who – are Jewish and how just 
how that was incredibly controversial. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, of course, we have to look at the moment of time that we're in. But if you look back, as you know better than anyone, um, John Gons, uh, just being, you know, historian on these issues, it, this is, it, it's not new nor unique in American politics that this is incredibly delicate of a situation uh, and that and the passions are running high with regards to this. I want to change it up quickly because James Ma- James Mattis has been making the rounds with his new book. And he spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's ripping Donald Trump. He's ripping Barack Obama. He's ripping George Bush. What's Jim Mattis's uh, former defense secretary, Jim Mattis, what is his motive why is he being so critical on all of these presidents what's what's his what's his what's his eye on well two things i'd say is he's actually proving how good a, uh, a defense secretary was because he is basically blocking any attempt to get him to talk about donald trump so he's being critical <laughs> uh, but he is dodging every question and defending and blocking every question on donald trump because he doesn't want to engage and uh, sort of spill the beans on what he says he says he's quote unquote old-fashioned and doesn't want to criticize a uh, sitting president but he has shown no problem uh, criticizing Barack Obama, a president uh, who did, in fact, relieve him of duty um, uh, when he was working in the Middle East. So in 2013. And I think one of the things that he's doing is he's trying to sell a book, a book deal that he made in 2013 when he left uniform for the first time. And it was kind of an odd book deal, right? He obviously got a book that was supposed to be about being a Marine. And he wrote a book about being a Marine. And I just finished it on the train ride down. And it's a good book on being a Marine. It is not a book. Call sign chaos. Learning to lead. And it's a book about being a Marine. And it's a very interesting book about a young Marine, a young kid. And there's a really compelling story there. And there's a reason Jim Mattis is compelling is that he was a guy who was a bit of a never-do-well who basically landed in the Marines and changed his life. And he changed history. He was in the Gulf Wars, in Iraq, he was in Afghanistan. But he doesn't engage with the very simple thing he has done for the past two and a half years or so, which was be Donald Trump's defense secretary. To your point, take a listen to former defense secretary James Mattis on Fox and Friends earlier this week. Here he is. This president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, uh, they have big responsibilities right now. And I don't believe that uh, that I add anything to it by representing uh, contrary views or something like this. There'll come a time when it's right for me to talk about strategy and policy. An independent coming up. Panel reacts. Roger Fisk, Holly Turner, John Gans, you're going to stick around. And stocks surge today. Bonds tumble on trade talks and data. We'll dive into the trade war and the latest, latest data points on its impacts on domestic politics. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Look, I know I'm based in Washington, but I am rooting for the Philadelphia Eagles this weekend against the Washington Redskins. I'm sorry, but it's, it's my Eagles and I will never be rooting for the Washington Redskins. That's just who I am. I apologize. Actually, I don't. Joining me here to talk all things policy and politics, not a sports show, Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, a Patriots fan, longtime Obama aide and principal of New Day Strategy, Holly Turner. Are you a football fan? 
Not really, but Cowboys. I'm from Texas. Oh! I know, I know. Oh, oh. Something worse than a Redskins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Republican strategist and partner at Stampede Consulting. And John Gons is sticking around. He's the former chief speech writer at the Pentagon, author of the book White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. Holly, you used to work at SBA, in the, the Small Business Association, in the Trump administration. Stocks had a good day today. Yeah. U.S. stocks surging and treasuries tumbled after a raft of data bolstered confidence in the American economy and trade tensions eased. The S&P 500 jumped to a five-week high led by tech shares after China and the U.S. agreed to trade talks early next month. Okay, that's from the Bloomberg Terminal. I gotta be honest, I, I covered this for Bloomberg Television all day. Every time there's like an inkling of trade news that's like they're going to talk stock surge but where do things stand on the u.s china trade front so look it's it's tough right now right like the president is making some really tough choices um but it's for the long-term economic health of our country and so it's hard it's hard to see some of our sectors suffer under this but ultimately we have to regain our leverage and you know he Obviously, he's thinking about the election in 2020, and so I, I predict that we will see him continue um, to hold his ground on these talks. And then as we get into uh, end of September, we'll probably see us, okay, where, wherever we are in these negotiations, let's just sign right here. For as turbulent, for lack of a better, better word, as the U.S.-China trade talks have been consistently for the past two months, we've been reporting that the China delegation would be coming to the United States in September. And that that calendar date has now been set. And that is still going to occur. That would appear, Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, that they're still moving along. They're still trucking along, despite those tariffs going into effect earlier this month and the threat of additional tariffs on $160 billion worth of Chinese imports set to go in effect in mid-December. Well, in classic Trumpian fashion, a lot of noise, a lot of chaos, and we've come back to the beginning because the deliverable that's coming out of the vice premier's trip, they always come in October, by the way, this is nothing new, specifically October's in odd years, is that they're going to resume mid-level talks. And what those mid-level talks used to be known as were two things, the Security and Economic Dialogue and the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, both of which don't necessarily date all the way back to the Nixon administration, but they're essentially the legacies thereof. They're the children of that initial detente between our two countries. Those were suspended because Mr. I alone can fix it came in and thought that he didn't need any kind of career staff or experts or people that deal on a on a assistant secretary level with China. There used to be working group meetings that would meet almost monthly to do all this. And those were all suspended at the beginning of the Trump administration because he alone could fix it. So in a sense, I'm thrilled to hear him come back around to embracing the framework of all these experts that are hiding in plain sight that desperately want to contribute to the success but of this Roger, country. But at least we've gotten past this bombastic, my personality is going to fix this But what have those stuff. career bureaucrats accomplished over the past few decades? Let me ask you a question, uh, Holly Turner, just putting on your, your, your previous title for a second yep. at the Small Business Association. One of the, the lines that I've heard from administration officials and from the White House recently has been that tariffs have been a, a, a source of revenue for Americans. Look, you and I know this. The farmers don't like the tariffs. They're not deserting the president from a political implication. But businesses, small business, mm -hmm. medium business, farmers, they don't like the tariffs. 
can the administration keep peddling this line that tariffs are a source of revenue and actually helping this? It's hard. Okay, so some sectors, maybe that works, right? Like, hey, we're going to, we're going to, this is going to benefit you in some way. There are there are some sectors that are definitely being hurt by this, and, and it's a hard line to swallow. Um, overall, I think what the president's trying to highlight is the revenue that's coming into the country, right? And so can we take that revenue like they did with the farm aid package, and can we put it back into some of these industries that are, that are suffering tempor- just to temporarily boost them up until we get this resolved? It's hard. It's I tough. Appreciate the, I appreciate the honesty there. All right, coming up, we're going to do What's on the Panel's Radar, where we dive into lesser-known stories, and we'll give you the latest on Brexit as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Panel stays. Roger Fisk, Holly Turner, John Gons. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We, <laughs> Roger Fisk is here, Democratic strategist, longtime Obama aide, principal of New Day Strategy, Holly Turner, Republican strategist. How do you like your first time on Bloomberg Radio Sound It's been On? so fun. Good. Fun. Would you come back? Of course. Roger, would you come back? I'm not leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And John Gons is here. He's the former chief speechwriter at the Pentagon, author of White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. Philly guy. Philly guy. You're a professor at uh, what's Penn State? University of Pennsylvania. Oh, I've heard of it. I went to Penn State. But, you know, University of Pennsylvania. Great school. I've heard of it. Uh, It's in a great city. We're going to do this thing. Doing a great job with the setup for this segment, everybody. Yeah. Um, we're going to do this this segment now where we do one thing on your radar. What's on your radar? I'm going to start with Holly Turner. What is on your radar? So what's on my radar today is this Hollywood blacklist that's coming out, the Trump list. And I'm, I am I haven't heard of this. So the, several actors have um, have put together a list, and they're asking other people to basically dox Trump supporters and make the list public so that their businesses are boycotted. And I have mixed feelings, right? Because on one hand, this is America and you're free to do what you want and you're free to say what you want. But on the other hand, it's just so divisive and it's going to cost people businesses and cost people jobs. And I am, it it is, it's just to me, this is the Democrat party, the anger and the rage. So they're saying, wait, so, so there's a list in Hollywood. Well, it originated, the the idea originated there, Deborah Messing and some of, and some of the, uh, Alyssa Milano, of course, jumped on real quickly. So, so Deborah Messing is calling for there to be a blacklist of, of donors. Any supporters. It's like the soul cycle thing. Yeah. So So if you support, if you're supportive, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting, right? I mean, but it's, it's also Ameri- not unique to politics, right? Because we're in this culture. Remember when Kendall Jenner had the Pepsi ad? I mean, we're in this culture where brands and corporations and politicians. It. it I, I know it feels unique to politics, but it actually is indicative of a larger social media trend of, of the the rage culture that we the yeah. cancel culture that we find. I ourselves just feel like in. it's one sided. I feel like all the rage is really coming from the left, not all of it. The majority of it's coming from the left. I personally, and a lot of Republicans I know, which I'm trying to like 
let's go support businesses and let's show them we're, that we're good people. Let's hey, to quote with. Taylor Swift, to quote Taylor <laughs> Swift, shake it off. Uh, <laughs> Roger, what's on your radar? That was a good one. That was a good one. What's on your radar? I'm fascinated with this country that we get to live in. And I stumbled on a really interesting stat lately. 75% of venture capital in the U.S. go to three states. And would anyone like to guess what those are? New oh, York. Correct. California. Correct. Virginia. Massachusetts, oh. which I think we could all agree is the most consequential state in the union. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting for me because it, 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 it shines a very interesting light on the difference between cultural conservatives and fiscal conservatives. We're told over and over that the coastal states aren't part of real America or something, which in the case of Massachusetts, if Massachusetts hadn't conducted itself the way it did 240 years ago, this country would look very differently. So I've never bought into that narrative, but I find it very interesting that when all the talk and all the bluster is gone, look where the money goes. And it rewards absurdly high standards for public education. It rewards uh, environmental standards. It rewards all kinds of things that are, that, are, that are cast about as not part of real America, but the dollars don't lie. And it's very interesting that 75% of the VC in the country. Go to I learned something. Thank you, Roger, for sharing that with us. That's why I'm here. And John Gans, what is on your radar? Well, it's hard to top Hollywood blacklists and other things. But I, uh, you know, I started off my Labor Day weekend and was looking forward to a few days at the Jersey Shore with my family. Loved it. Where in the Jersey Shore? I went to Brigantine, New Jersey. Love Brigantine. Go ahead. So I, I was all excited and I, and I left work and I'm sitting in traffic. And for those of us that watch the National Security Council, a little news item broke in the Washington Post, which was by John Hudson and Josh Dossie, which said that John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, who's been sort of dragged through the mud by his own president the past few months, was kept out of discussions of negotiations over the Afghanistan war. He asked for a briefing on the latest, and he was denied one. And this is a pretty consequential thing, and, and it was kind of a shock to National Security Council officers, and certainly a shock um, if you're interested in John Bolton's trajectory. But it was also kind of a reminder of how much um, this stuff matters. And so I've been spending all week trying to figure out what it means when the National Security Advisors cut out of things. Because the National Security Advisor has been a key part of how the United States has tried to lead the war, for, lead the world for 70 years. So I have a piece coming out in the at the Atlantic tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning in the Atlantic. Means, what this means, what John Bolton's ouster means. And I think everybody in Washington loves this sort of react with some schneidenfreud and like kind of being like there's no better person to be humiliated but it actually will have real consequences for the united states on the global stage. i'm excited to read that john gunn's report piece in the atlantic tomorrow regarding all of that i mean there really is a no better analyst uh than john to to navigate through all that what's on my radar we're still tracking brexit british prime minister boris johnson stood in a police academy in the north of england today giving a speech that was supposed to mark the start of a month-long snap election campaign. It's not going that way, folks. Uh, Boris Johnson instead was trying to fight back after a series of – the, the Bloomberg Terminal has done incredible reporting on this – humiliating defeats. There's really no other word for it. Humiliating defeats for Boris Johnson for his Brexit strategy, culminating in the resignation of his own brother. His own brother had to resign in protest of his plans. Out of options, Johnson doubled down on his plan to trigger a general election to win a parliamentary majority so he can fulfill his pledge to take the UK out 
of the European Union. I'll just note that Vice President Mike Pence, uh, he was asked about this and he said, quote, we honestly believe that the UK is on the verge of what your new prime minister, Boris Johnson, called a new golden age, a new era in which our two nations will stand side by side. So we're keeping a close eye on Brexit. Thank you to our panel, Holly Turner, Roger Fisk, John Gans. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.